welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It's been a whirlwind tour of the Midwest, including with the FBA Immigration Law Section's annual conference in Detroit, which was awesome. I learned a lot, both from the private bar and government attorneys, not to mention from the many, many judges in attendance. I highly recommend. Also worth noting, big and seemingly negative decision on immigration detention and jurisdiction out of the Fourth Circuit, vacating a district court preliminary injunction that seemed to place the burden on ICE in non-mandatory detention bond proceedings. Womp womp. Possibly a precursor of things to come out of the Supreme Court this term. Preemptive womp womp. To take us on our seven-case journey this week, I thought it proper to bring in the big guns, the OG. That's right, the omnipotent grandma. Take it away. Thanks, Kevin. This is Grandma Lois here to introduce the week's cases for all immigration attorneys and podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world. Thanks, Grandma. First is matter of BZR, published by the Attorney General. Always happy to have cause to begin with Attorney General Garland. This case is about mental health and particularly serious crimes. It vacates matter of GGS, a decision that I've been referring to as zombie precedent for some time, because the Ninth Circuit actually vacated GGS previously on direct petition for review. But now, the decision is definitively no longer good law because the Attorney General can, at any time, completely vacate and make, completely non-precedential, any BIA decision that the Attorney General wants to. So, with matter of GGS vacated, immigration judges, the BIA, and even USCIS, I guess, quote, may consider a respondent's mental health in determining whether an individual, end quote, committed a particularly serious crime for purposes of asylum and withholding of removal. Here's what's up. A non-citizen convicted of a particularly serious crime is ineligible for asylum and withholding of removal under the INA and Convention Against Torture. 
A state or federal offense that matches the immigration definition of an aggravated felony is a per se particularly serious crime for asylum in all instances. And an aggravated felony or aggravated felonies for which the non-citizen served at least five years in prison are per se particularly serious crimes for withholding purposes. But even if a conviction isn't a per se particularly serious crime for either form of relief there, it can still be deemed a particularly serious crime if an immigration judge makes the finding on a case-by-case basis, employing a three-step analysis based on the, quote, nature and circumstances of the crime at issue, end quote. That's a matter of NAM, a decision that I read every time I brief one of these issues. All right, that's the background. In 1986, the BIA held that, quote, the essential key in determining whether an offense is particularly serious is whether it indicates that the respondent poses a danger to the community, end quote. The Ninth Circuit agreed with that general principle when it vacated matter of GGS. But notwithstanding that principle, in matter of GGS, the BIA instructed adjudicators to focus only on the crime committed itself without considering any additional factors in an effort to conclude whether the crime indicates that the non-citizen is actually dangerous. Case in point, the non-citizen in this case was convicted for burglary in violation of New Jersey Statute Annotated Section 2C, 18-2A1, and sentenced to four years imprisonment. Not a per se bar to withholding of removal, at a minimum, because it doesn't have the five years imprisonment. And here, the non-citizen suffered from some serious mental health conditions, and everybody agreed on that. The IJ and the BIA nevertheless denied withholding of removal without discussing his serious mental health issues. But in this decision, overturning the BIA, the Attorney General held that, quote, in some circumstances, a respondent's mental health condition may indicate that the respondent does not pose a danger to the community, end quote. Not the case in all circumstances, but it is something that the IJ and the BIA must now consider within the matter of NAM case-by-case analysis. It doesn't matter to the Attorney General whether the mental health issue was ever raised in the criminal proceeding underlying the conviction. The primary focus on the particularly serious crime analysis is on whether the non-citizen is a danger, and current mental health assessments are now again relevant to that inquiry. And by the way, quote, both Respondent and the Department of Homeland Security now agree that GGS is erroneous and should be overruled, end quote. Shout out to the original IJ on matter of GGS, who similarly agreed. Pretty short and sweet decision from the Attorney General, as always it seems. Congratulations, Council, all the amici, and indeed, even DHS. And just to wrap it up. As the Attorney General notes in this decision, the 8th and 9th Circuits had previously refused to grant matter of GGS Chevron deference, but the 10th Circuit did. So as I understand administrative law, even though the 10th Circuit previously deferred to GGS, its decision doing so, Baran Hoovy Wilkinson, episode 46, is no longer good law because there is no longer something to defer to. Indeed, as the Tenth Circuit believed the issue ambiguous in Baranhu, it should defer to the Attorney General's decision now. We shall see. Anyway, for now, mental health evidence is in everywhere for particularly serious crime analyses. And that is matter of BZR. Next is Kathongo v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on May 9th, 2022. Here we have another decision about particularly serious crimes. 
No mental health issues mentioned, though. Mr. Kathangos from Kenya and applied for asylum in the U.S. based on his family's experience in Kenya. He entered the U.S. on a non-immigrant visa and has remained for many years afterwards. He has a wife and U.S. citizen children. Unfortunately, he also has a criminal record, including a recent conviction, quote, for conspiring with others to rob three victims, two of whom were children, end quote, in violation of Indiana Code Section 35-41-5-2A. He didn't commit the robbery, but apparently knowingly accompanied the conspirators to the scene and people were hurt. A weapon was present. He received a year in prison and served whatever criminal sentence was required of him. He was placed in removal proceedings where an immigration judge found him removable and deemed the conspiracy robbery conviction an aggravated felony that barred him from asylum. He applied for withholding removal and cat protection and additionally adjustment of status under INA Section 245A. Looks like his wife was a U.S. citizen. And even if the conviction is an aggravated felony, aggravated felonies don't bar adjustment to LPR status unless the aggravated felony also matches a ground of inadmissibility at Section 212. Hence, his application to adjust to LPR status. And IJ and the BIA denied it all, and he's been in immigration custody for years. Unfortunately, dear listeners, we don't receive much of the Seventh Circuit's thoughts on the matter because it deemed most of the agency decision jurisdictionally barred from its review. For adjustment of status, that's because the INA bars review of discretionary denials of relief, and here, the IJ denied adjustment for both statutory and admissibility grounds, and alternatively, as a matter of discretion, by balancing the positive and negative factors in Mr. Gathango's life. Therefore, quote, unless he can identify a legal or constitutional issue to evaluate, end quote, the Seventh Circuit believes it can't review the denial. And according to the court, Mr. Gathango did not identify such an issue. Now, the agency also deemed Mr. Kathango ineligible for withholding of removal by applying matter of NAM to see if his conviction, not a per se particularly serious crime, nevertheless barred him. It held that it did, and Mr. Kathango challenged that decision. And in addressing that challenge, the Seventh Circuit offers a quote that expresses an argument that I make whenever applicable, that is, that, quote, crimes against persons rather than property are more likely to qualify as particularly serious, end quote. So thank you for making that clear, Seventh Circuit. But ultimately, matter of NAM, according to the court, requires a balancing of factors, and it is, quote, beyond our jurisdiction to review whether the board's decision incorrectly weighed the relevant factors, end quote. Here, not only did the IJ conclude that Mr. Kathango's crime was of the type that indicated it was particularly serious due to its, quote, violent nature, end quote, but the IJ also balanced the specific facts of his crime. For what it's worth, though, the IJ did, quote, note that Mr. Kathongo's limited personal involvement was a mitigating factor, end quote. So it's nice to know that such arguments will be entertained at the immigration judge level. But ultimately, again, the Seventh Circuit deemed the arguments as one asking it to reweigh facts under the matter of NAM analysis, and it believes that the INA precludes it from doing so. That leaves only deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture, a protection that the court can review, including even factual findings, due to the Supreme Court's Nasrallah decision two terms ago. Unfortunately, the Seventh Circuit believes that Mr. Kathango didn't adequately make those arguments first before the BIA, meaning that he didn't exhaust them, meaning that he can't bring them now to the Seventh Circuit. Although, and a bit interestingly, the Seventh Circuit calls this requirement 
a non-citizen's obligation to present arguments first to the BIA before a circuit will entertain them, a case processing rule rather than a purely jurisdictional requirement. And as us immigration lawyers now all know, maybe a case processing rule is like a claims processing rule, and maybe then there are exceptions to the rule provided that the right facts exist. I don't know. But none were argued or identified here. Mr. Gathongo didn't bring a specific cat arguments before the BIA, and so the Seventh Circuit dismissed them. And that is Gathongo v. Garland. Heading to the circuit next door, we have Tojin 2 v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on May 12, 2022. It's a short one from the Eighth Circuit on asylum. Mr. Tojin too is from Guatemala and came to the U.S. at 17 years old. In removal proceedings, he applied for asylum based on his membership in two asserted particular social groups, his father's immediate family, and, quote, young Guatemalan men who refused to cooperate with gang members, end quote. If there's a theme to be garnered from this podcast over the course of its life, it's that whatever your view of the law, gangs are a serious problem in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And in fact, Mr. Tojin Tu's father testified at his individual hearing, a bit of a rarity in these cases. As it turns out, the father was the second in command in a local government security force, and as a result, was kidnapped, starved, and beaten for three days in 2009. After his release, possibly following a ransom, his kidnappers then threatened to murder him if he told anyone. And after the father's release as well, the father and the family received phone calls threatening death if more money wasn't paid. The family moved towns multiple times, but the threats continued. In the final town, Mr. Chojan too was recruited by gang members and refused to join. The gang stuff, quote, culminated with gang members cutting Mr. Chojan too's face with a knife and threatening his friend at gunpoint, end quote. Mr. Chojan too and his brother fled to the U.S., an IJ and the BIA held that that wasn't past persecution on account of a protected ground, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed it. The Eighth Circuit believes it comes down to nexus. It believes that the threats to the father and the family from the kidnappers had more to do with extortion than because of persecution of the family itself. And while horrifying, if the reason for harm is criminal extortion for money, it won't usually establish the nexus to one of the five limited protected grounds that permit asylum grants. As to the gang stuff, the Eighth Circuit held, citing to a 2012 decision that, quote, young Guatemalan men who refuse to cooperate with gang members is not cognizable under our established precedent, end quote. Not only that, the Eighth Circuit agreed that Mr. Tajan too didn't establish that he suffered past persecution. Even the, quote, single violent encounter, end quote, with the gang, where his face was cut, didn't rise to the level, according to the court. Plus, for all of it, Mr. Tojan Tu's mother and sister remain unharmed in Guatemala, thereby undermining his claims, said the court. So, the Eighth Circuit upheld denial of Mr. Tojan Tu's application. But here's a footnote. As the Eighth Circuit implies in a footnote, there is out-of-circuit case law to support an argument that the gang attacks, which happened to Mr. Tojan Tu when he was an adolescent, may be past persecution because of his age, even if they aren't if they happen to an adult. Unfortunately, the Eighth Circuit believed the argument unexhausted before the BIA, so it didn't address it in this decision. 
but the argument is not precluded by Eighth Circuit precedent. And for recent favorable case law on the issue, look to the Fourth Circuit. And that is Tojan 2 v. Garland. Moving right along, we have Zhang v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on May 9th, 2022. This case is about crimes involving moral turpitude, with a whole lot packed in. Ms. Zhang is from South Korea, entered the U.S. without authorization in 1995, and has been here ever since. Quote, she is now a single parent and the sole provider for her U.S. citizen daughter. End quote. She is removable, but she is also eligible for non-LPR cancellation removal under INA Section 248B, provided that she can establish the necessary hardship to her U.S. citizen child. And she did apply for this relief once placed in removal proceedings. An IJ and then the BIA found, however, that she was ineligible for this relief because in 2014, she pled guilty to attempted second-degree money laundering in violation of New York Penal Law Section 470.15 1BIIA, with a sentence of, quote, time served, end quote. If convicted of a CIMT, non-citizens cannot obtain non-LPR cancellation of removal. The IJ and BIA deemed the conviction a CIMT, and so denied relief. And because I'm feeling a bit generous this week after attending and mingling at the FBA conference in Detroit, the agency wasn't crazy. After all, in 2007, the BIA held in matter of Tejwani that the substantive crime of second-degree money laundering in New York was a CIMT. Not satisfied with that, though, Ms. Zhang's litigious attorney argued that Tejwani is wrong and the, quote, offense of second-degree money laundering does not qualify as a CIMT because it does not involve intent to defraud the government through a deliberate act to conceal illegal activity or attempting to make the appearance of legitimate source of funds, end quote. And in this decision, the Second Circuit agreed with Ms. Jang and her litigious attorney. Now just to get it out of the way, Precedent holds that a conspiracy or attempt to commit a crime is a CIMT so long as the substantive offense underlying the conspiracy or attempt is also a CIMT. No one appears to have argued otherwise in this case, and actually the Second Circuit made clear that it was following that rule in this decision. Therefore, the issue comes down to substantive second-degree money laundering in New York, even though Ms. Jang was convicted of only an attempt, i.e., the exact issue from Matter of Tejwani. Well, kind of. Because between Matter of Tejwani and Ms. Jang's conviction, the second-degree money laundering statute in New York changed. Love it. Now, the statute requires, quote, knowledge but not an intent to conceal or disguise the nature, the location, the source, the ownership, or the control of such proceeds, end quote. So at a minimum, Matter of Tejwani is no longer adjudicating the very New York second-degree money laundering statute that it reviewed way back when. Because again, the statute is now different and does not have an intended fraud element for all offenses occurring after November 1st, 2000, when the law changed. And all of this is very important because in the Second Circuit, and at least for nonviolent crimes, quote, it is in the intent that moral turpitude inheres, end quote. For this reason, quote, knowledge of a crime and concealment of a crime are not categorically sufficient types of scienter to denote a CIMT if the statute of conviction does not require a specific mental purpose to conceal, end quote. Or put in layman's terms and right off the bat, the BIA's decision in matter of Tijuani has issues. 
But is this new version of second-degree money laundering in New York nevertheless a CIMT? Well, as we'll recall, whether a state conviction is a CIMT requires application of the categorical approach, which therefore requires that we know what all the elements of the second-degree money laundering statute in New York are. Reviewing that statute, the Second Circuit held that this conviction has four elements, all of which it outlines pretty clearly in the decision. But as important to its holding, the Second Circuit held that those elements do not require the, quote, evil intent, end quote, that is often required by long-standing BIA precedent to constitute a CIMT. Like, for example, in the BIA's decision matter of CERNA. To the Second Circuit, and under BIA precedent, to be a CIMT, a money laundering offense would have to require, as an element, quote, an intention to conceal the underlying criminal activity that created the proceeds, to impair government function, or to deceive the government, end quote. Emphasis by the Second Circuit. A knowing mens rea or anything less than an intent to defraud, it appears, just isn't going to likely cut it in the Second Circuit something the Second Circuit also held way back on Episode 5 in Mendez v. Barr. New York second-degree money laundering definitely doesn't cut it. It, quote, provides that the intent requirement is satisfied merely by knowledge that the financial transaction is designed to conceal or disguise the nature, the location, the source of ownership, or the control of the proceedings of the specified criminal conduct, end quote. It only requires knowledge. And in this context, that is not turpitudinous enough. Congratulations to my friend and KKTP alum, David Kim, in Queens. More on Matter of Tijuana. Zombie precedent alert. It appears that the Third Circuit vacated Matter of Tijuana on direct petition for review in Tijuana v. Attorney General of the U.S. in 2009. Unsure, therefore, why Matter of Tijuana applies anywhere, outside the Third Circuit, of course, anymore but I guess it does. And as the Second Circuit notes, the BIA has held, in both matter of Tejuani and other cases, that when a crime, quote, impairs the efficient functioning of government, end quote, even without any fraud or an intentional mental state, it can still be a CIMT. The Second Circuit believes that that line of cases about those specific government-based CIMTs, quote, sits in some tension, end quote, with the other BIA and circuit precedent, holding that generally, nonviolent crimes are only CIMTs when they require fraudulent conduct or at least intentional wrongdoing. The Second Circuit didn't reach that tension here, because as we just discussed, it believed that the change to the statute in New York itself was dispositive but it's certainly favorable language to remember and use for another day. It's also an important qualifier for immigration practitioners to remember. As of now, crimes that harm the government generally have a lower threshold than the one just discussed in this decision to be CIMTs. And that is Jang v. Garland. Heading to the Fifth Circuit, we have Pina Lopez v. Garland, published on May 12, 2022. This case is about motions to reopen under the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA. Mr. Pina Lopez is from El Salvador, was placed in removal proceedings, did not appear for his hearing, and was ordered removed in absentia in 2004. He was not physically removed, and in 2012, he married a U.S. citizen. 
An I-130 was filed by his wife and approved for his benefit, and he filed two motions to reopen with the immigration court afterwards. Both were denied. Mr. Pena Lopez then filed a third motion to reopen under INA Section 240C7CIV, quote, which sets forth a special rule for motions to reopen filed by battered spouses, children, and parents, end quote. In support, he stated that his wife had, quote, used her ability to file I-130 petitions for him and his two sons as a means to oppress and control him, end quote, including mistreatment of their children, verbal abuse of Mr. Pena Lopez, and even physical abuse. Then the wife kicked Mr. Pena Lopez and the children out of the home, quote, she allowed them to take only their clothing from the home, end quote. For all of these reasons and a bit more, Mr. Pena Lopez filed a third motion to reopen to apply for VAWA cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B2AII as a battered or abused spouse of a U.S. citizen or LPR. The IJ and the BIA denied this third motion as well. Unlike most other motions to reopen, motions to reopen under INA Section 240C7CIV made to apply for VAWA cancellation of removal are not subject to the regular 90-day rule. Rather, the non-citizen has one year post-removal order to file his or her VAWA-based motion to reopen. So that's definitely a benefit to assist battered and abused non-citizens. And even if it's over the one year, IJs can, quote, waive this one-year time limitation in the case of a non-citizen who demonstrates extraordinary circumstances or extreme hardship to the non-citizen's child, end quote. Mr. Pena Lopez's motion, which was well after the one-year post-final order of removal from 2004, made that request here, but ultimately, the BIA declined to reopen proceedings and denied the motion. In essence, the BIA held that the hardship wasn't extreme enough to warrant an extension of the one-year deadline to file a VAWA-based motion to reopen. Now, for what it's worth, the Fifth Circuit first held in this decision, contrary to two of its prior unpublished decisions, that it had jurisdiction to consider whether the BIA erred in refusing to extend the one-year deadline. And that's because of the Supreme Court's Guerrero-Lasprilla decision two years ago, wherein the Supreme Court held that, quote, the application of a legal standard to established facts is a mixed question of fact and law and is therefore not jurisdictionally barred, end quote. So here, the Fifth Circuit can review whether the agreed-upon facts of this case meet the legal definition of extraordinary circumstances or extreme hardship as required to extend the motion to reopen filing deadline. Rock on. It's not like a motion for sua sponte reopening, an essentially standardless request that asks the IJ and the BIA to reopen a case by appealing to their better natures. Rather, there's a legal standard to apply to facts when it comes to extending the one-year deadline to file a VAWA-based motion to reopen. Accordingly, the Fifth Circuit can decide whether the BIA correctly applied that standard, at least when the facts underlying the motion are not disputed before the Fifth Circuit. So, the Fifth Circuit reviewed it, and it agreed with the BIA, applying its, quote, highly deferential, end quote, standard of review, of course. There aren't that many decisions explaining what extraordinary circumstances or extreme hardship to a non-citizen's child is, so the Fifth Circuit provided some guidance here. To the Fifth, it requires, quote, a showing beyond ordinary circumstances or mere hardship, end quote. The, quote, ordinary circumstances of a VAWA-based motion to reopen, end quote, won't cut it, 
Because remember, where this standard is in play, non-citizens are asking an IJ or the BIA to extend the deadline to file such a motion. Logically, I guess then, if all VAWA circumstances met the standard to extend the one-year motion to reopen filing deadline, then there would be no filing deadline in practice. At the end of the day, the Fifth Circuit did not outline, quote, the precise contours, end quote, of the legal standard. But whatever they are, can say confidently that the ordinary, terrible circumstances of a VAWA-based motion to reopen and the usual hardships of a relocation do not suffice, end quote. In this case at most, Mr. Pena Lopez presented a common, albeit and by definition terrible for non-citizens, VAWA-type claim. Lacking jurisdiction to review Mr. Peña Lopez's alternative request to the BIA to reopen his proceedings to Esponte, the Fifth Circuit denied and dismissed the petition. And that is Peña Lopez v. Garland. That brings us to the Eleventh Circuit, which has published two decisions this week, and to end the episode. The first of the two is Priva v. U.S. Attorney General, published on May 12, 2022. This case is about reasonable fear proceedings and the right to counsel. Judge Wilson dissented. Mr. Priva is from Haiti and entered the U.S. in 2014 on an R1 non-immigrant religious visa. Don't see many of those on the pod. He obtained conditional lawful permanent resident status a few years later, likely based on his marriage to a U.S. citizen but was then arrested and convicted of visa fraud and conspiracy in violation of 18 U.S.C. sections 1546A and 371, a few months later. He received over two years imprisonment. While in custody, Mr. Priva was served by DHS with a notice of intent to issue a final administrative removal order, or a FARO, a document that is essentially ICE telling a non-citizen that he will be removed expeditiously without opportunity to appear before an immigration judge. Immigration law does provide DHS this authority under certain circumstances, including, at least sometimes, where a non-citizen has been convicted of an aggravated felony. DHS decided that Mr. Priva's crime was an aggravated felony at INA Section 101A43P. It seems no one is challenging that here. However, even under these expeditious and constitutionally dubious non-judicial proceedings, DHS can't remove a non-citizen if that non-citizen will be persecuted or tortured in their home country. Mr. Priva said that he had such a fear, and so he was provided a reasonable fear interview before a DHS asylum officer. If Mr. Priva had passed that interview, he'd have had an opportunity to present his claim before an immigration judge. But DHS, which was seeking to remove him for his commission of an aggravated felony, also ultimately determined that he didn't have a reasonable fear of persecution or torture in Haiti. How it all went down is important to this 11th Circuit decision. At the first reasonable fear interview, Mr. Priva had an attorney who requested that DHS reschedule the interview so that the attorney could speak with Mr. Priva. DHS accommodated that request. Mr. Priva then had three substantive reasonable fear interviews with DHS from prison, with his attorney appearing over the phone. Mr. Priva testified that he had been helping people get to the U.S. from Haiti for a fee that he promised to return if they didn't get into the U.S., but about a 100 people hadn't made it in, and now he couldn't pay them back, and so he fears those people in Haiti. He stated that he received threats from about 20 of the people, and that other people like him had already been killed in Haiti. He told the asylum officer that some Haitian ministers were involved in the scheme and that police were complicit in Haiti. 
seems like he got pretty detailed for a reasonable fear interview. The DHS asylum officer did eventually find Mr. Prevo credible, but didn't believe there was sufficient possibility that Mr. Prevo could establish that his fear was on account of one of the five protected grounds required for asylum or withholding. That's the pesky nexus standard. Also, the officer believed that any harm Mr. Prevo would suffer would not be by a Haitian government official or with their acquiescence, as required for protection under the Convention Against Torture. And again, this is a reasonable fear interview. Mr. Priva has a much lower burden to meet, and if he passes it, all he gets is the opportunity to present his fear to a judge. The asylum officer believed that Mr. Priva had not met that lessened burden. Mr. Priva requested that an IJ review that limited determination, that is, whether the asylum officer correctly determined that he didn't even have a shot at receiving a full hearing. Mr. Priva was informed that he could be represented by an attorney in the immigration court notice but he ended up appearing before the IJ without an attorney. The IJ agreed with the asylum officer that Mr. Priva hadn't made his initial showing to even get a hearing on his claims. That meant Mr. Priva would be expeditiously removed to Haiti. Mr. Priva petitioned all of it to the 11th Circuit. Primarily, though, Mr. Priva argued that the IJ denied him a right to an attorney in the reasonable fear review pseudo-hearing type thing. And maybe the IJ did, maybe the IJ did not. It's actually a bit ambiguous, because while the regulations provide a right to counsel before the asylum officer in such proceedings, quote, the regulations are silent about any right or privilege to counsel during the immigration judge's review of the asylum officer's negative determination, end quote. The Ninth Circuit held in 2019, however, that non-citizens do have such a right to counsel, a decision that Mr. Priva urged the Eleventh Circuit to adopt here. But ultimately, the 11th Circuit did not say whether Mr. Preva had the right to counsel under the Fifth Amendment, because it believed that, even if he had a right, he must show that he had suffered, quote, substantial prejudice, end quote, as a result of not having an attorney for him to get any benefit from the possible violation. Now, don't freak out at what appears at first blush to be a high standard for substantial prejudice that might bleed, say, into ineffective assistance of counsel motions to reopen. Because under 11th Circuit precedent, that's just another way of saying that, quote, the non-citizen must establish that presence of counsel might have affected the outcome, end quote. And that's a standard that I recognize. But here it was not met. Reviewing the hearing transcript, the 11th Circuit determined that the IJ properly warned and advised Mr. Priva in a language that he understood, and that the IJ considered the correct factors for withholding of removal relief and cat protection. Plus, Mr. Priva was represented by counsel before the asylum officer, a record that the IJ was reviewing. Worth noting, the 11th Circuit also believed that the Supreme Court's Nasrallah decision two terms ago permitted it to review the IJ's factual findings related to cat protection, even though those findings were made in a reasonable fear review hearing, not a merits convention against torture individual hearing. But then the 11th Circuit found no error, including the IJ's finding that Mr. Priva didn't even have a chance on this record of establishing that the Haitian police would consent or acquiesce to the fear of torture that he had, a showing that he needed to make to ultimately succeed on any cat claim if he had had the opportunity to bring it. Weird stuff, these reasonable fear review proceedings. Mr. Priva will be removed to Haiti. But for good measure. (music) 
Judge Wilson, in dissent, agrees with Mr. Priva that, quote, there is a statutory right to counsel in reasonable fear review proceedings before an IJ, and that where a non-citizen has been denied the right to counsel in an immigration proceeding, he or she is not required to demonstrate substantial prejudice to obtain relief, end quote. So next time around, everybody, with the right case, if you've got Judge Wilson on your panel, well, here you go. And that is Priva v. U.S. Attorney General. That brings us to Lopez Morales v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on May 11, 2022. This decision is about BIA exhaustion and indigenous racial discrimination. Mr. Morales is from Guatemala and is ethnically and culturally mom, quote, an indigenous ethnic group, end quote. He speaks mom rather than Spanish as his primary language. He came to the U.S. border requesting asylum at 17 years old by himself. In immigration court, Mr. Morales testified to a lifetime of harassment and verbal abuse by a variety of individuals due to his mom ethnicity. He was beaten and for a time forced into a form of involuntary servitude. Neither police nor community leaders helped him when he reported it. When asked by the immigration judge why he didn't corroborate his claims with affidavits from his family in Guatemala, he said that his mom only spoke mom, and he didn't know to ask his siblings. As relevant to this decision, the IJ determined that Mr. Morales failed to meet his evidentiary burden to establish that he had suffered or feared persecution on account of a protected ground. The IJ rejected the proposed particular social group of, quote, young Guatemalan and Mayan descendants who may be subject to discrimination, forced labor, and physical abuse, end quote. The IJ deemed the group circular because it is defined in part by the individual's risk of harm and therefore not cognizable under asylum law. Mr. Morales also argued many things before the BIA, including that the IJ failed to also analyze the risk of harm on account of his Mayan race. And that's because race is itself one of the five protected grounds. There is no need to identify a cognizable particular social group if someone has been or fears persecution on account of their race. Mr. Morales also argued that the IJ's alternative finding that relocation in Guatemala was reasonable was not, in fact, reasonable. The BIA affirmed the IJ. As did the 11th Circuit. And while first actually, it deemed one of Mr. Morales' primary arguments unexhausted before the BIA and therefore unreviewable. In the 11th Circuit, a non-citizen, quote, must raise both the core issue and set out any discrete arguments he relies on in support of that claim before the BIA, end quote. Here, the 11th Circuit believed that Mr. Morales didn't adequately argue before the BIA one of his core arguments that the IJ failed to give him proper, advance notice that further corroboration would be needed before denying his case. This is important because in the 11th Circuit, quote, an applicant's failure to corroborate his testimony can be fatal to his asylum application, end quote, particularly if the applicant's testimony is weak. Before the BIA, and with different counsel, I believe, Mr. Morales apparently did not make the corroboration argument at all, and at best, did so in passing so the 11th Circuit held that he couldn't bring that argument for the first time before the court on petition for review. While it's worth remembering that, quote, the exhaustion doctrine may not apply to claims which the agency lacks the power to adjudicate, end quote, 
The BIA does have the power to decide whether an IJ violated an IJ's obligations regarding corroboration requirements, as explained by the BIA's decision in matter of LAC, or matter of lack. So Mr. Morales needed to exhaust that argument. His failure to do so barred him from review in the 11th Circuit, here. And by the way, in the 11th Circuit, and unlike possibly the 9th Circuit, even if there's an adverse BIA decision directly on point, the non-citizen must still urge the BIA to rule otherwise if the non-citizen is to preserve the argument for a petition for review to the 11th. Remember that, for example, with challenging matter of CTL and the arguably different nexus requirements for asylum and withholding of removal. Anyway, the 11th Circuit did find Mr. Morales' second claim exhausted, the argument that the BIA and IJ had failed to give, quote, reasoned consideration, end quote, to Mr. Morales' separate claim for asylum based on his Mayan ethnicity or race. Unfortunately for Mr. Morales, though, the 11th Circuit disagreed with his reading of the record. Quote, The BIA did not forget the racial persecution claim because, although brief, the BIA clearly acknowledged and adjudicated the claim. End quote. As it appears that no challenge was brought to the substance of that denial, no easy task, of course, that ended the case. Mr. Morales did not succeed. But there is a final footnote. I know, respect, and have been in contact with Mr. Morales' 11th Circuit Council, and am aware that on the corroborating evidence issue that was deemed not exhausted, Council was trying to get the 11th Circuit, in large part, to implement a generally non-citizen-friendly rule similar to that explained by the 9th Circuit in Wren v. Holder. Seems like the 3rd Circuit has a rule similar to Wren. While, of course, the BIA's decision on the issue is the less non-citizen-friendly matter of lack. And who knows, but for exhaustion, maybe Mr. Morales would have succeeded. For now, the 11th Circuit tantalizingly notes that, quote, the substance of Mr. Morales' claim remains an open question in the 11th Circuit, end quote. Next time, guys. And that is Lopez Morales, the U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.